Yeah, small sample and sometimes a statistically significant difference isn't a physiologically significant difference. Right. Um, and sometimes the opposite is true, where a non-significant statistical difference is actually physiological, physio physiologically different and important. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the tension often lies in the idea of are you if you're recruiting these untrained athletes, which untrained college males, which is what so much of the science is done on. Mm -hmm. um, they have they start from such a low level that they can go they can move up quite a bit yeah but what we're often interested in is what happens if you take the elite athlete and can you nudge them just a little bit further this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpre skincare for athletes whether you're in the gym on the mats on the road or in the pool we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body to learn more go to solpre.com Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest is a former division run runner at UC Davis. He's currently a coach with Charmin Ultra. He has his PhD in medical physiology. And if I can get through this last part, he's an assistant professor and the chair of the Department of Health and Human Performance at the College of Idaho. Welcome to the show today, Matt Lay. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt, are you having are you guys having like horrid um, heat and humidity? in Idaho like we are here in Kansas City? No, we're having pretty typical uh, summer for us. So that's mid-90s during the day and uh, 60s at night. So okay. pretty nice, comfortable in the mornings. So right now I'm actually you know, wearing like a long sleeve shirt. <laughs> uh, wake up like... in the morning and it's, and it's comfortable. So Yeah, we've had a couple of days like that, but it's been it's just been horrendous where – there have been mornings where it's, I you know I get up to go to my run and it's seven o'clock. It's already eighty five. It's like eighty percent humidity, and then by the time I'm done, it's already in the night. It's just been terrible. So I've like um, the last person I talked to, I asked as well, like, how do you deal with the heat? Like, do you do you guys even have to do much heat acclimation? You like with you and um, the runners you work with? Yeah. So I coach a team in. Um in Boise, Idaho, uh, the Boise Billies, and we're sort of a post-collegiate, um, sub-elite team, uh, just a bunch of guys looking to have fun and try to run fast and get better. Mm -hmm. And um, in the summer, we've, well, throughout the year, our schedule is we meet on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. So mm -hmm. that's typically the hottest part of the day in the summer. And so there's not much heat acclimatization to that. It's just getting used to running in the heat, which means, you know, being okay with running a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, you're not fighting that humidity here. You know, we're in the, like, teens in terms of the percent humidity, so it's super dry, yeah. um, which at least allows the, the sweat to evaporate and do a little bit of cooling. And we've moved our, our runs from the summer away from the track with no shade down to the green belt along the river, which has a bit of shade and also it's actually a bit cooler. And yeah, you get the breeze off the water. Yeah, and it happens to start and end at a brewery, so that's a, a, a good a good secondary reason for that as well. Um, but yeah. I don't miss the humidity at all. You know, I did my my I did my time in the Midwest five years at, at in Columbia. That's where yeah. I got my PhD. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We have a we have a team here in town, the Casey Smoke, and it's a bunch of yeah post collegiate guys that are still like it, all. Well, like 5k times they're still like running you know 15 sometimes 14 minute 
um, 5Ks. Um, do you guys do like, do you go back out to like open cross country meets? Do you just do road races? Yeah, so we're we're trying to so we're in our second year really of developing. And last year we went to club nationals for the first time, and that was okay. up in Spokane. Um, so competing against teams like Kansas City Smoke um, and the team I used to run for in Columbia, Columbia Track Club. When I was there, I was able to get them to go to club nationals as well. And that's always, to me, the most fun post-collegiate event because it's mm -hmm. like 500 dudes who are fit and you run, you know, a 32-minute 10K in your 300th place or something like yeah. that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy how much depth there is. And so our, our goal is to try to build up our team well enough that we can be a little bit more competitive than we were this year uh, there. And then the rest of the team – they're pretty, they're pretty split. So we'll have that one focused event and then everybody sort of, they goes off, they go off and do whatever they're sort of interested in. So we have road marathoners, road half marathoners. We have trail guys, short trail guys, ultra trail guys, hundred mile trail guys. Uh, so regardless of what they're doing, um, I always feel like there's benefit to getting them all together at least once a week mm -hmm. doing some sort of speed session. Uh, they can all benefit from from the speed. And for some of them, it's a it's a longer speed session than they would typically do. And for some of them, it's a much shorter speed session. Yeah. Uh, so it has to sort of fit the needs of everyone in the group, um, which is a challenge and also but also really fun. Yeah, but I mean, actually getting together still, I think helps solidify that team feeling versus like, we're all just guys wearing the same jersey that show up at the same place. You know, like I think that would help with it being a team instead of just a bunch of individuals. Yeah. And that's the community part that is, is hard to build, but mm -hmm. worthwhile to worthwhile building. And it takes time. Um, and it takes sort of a critical mass of getting enough people who are going to be consistently coming out mm -hmm. uh, day for that sort of thing. And, um, that's been that's been the challenge in Boise. Even though we're a great town for for being active, um, we're not really a, a running city. We don't have great races. Mm -hmm. uh, we have great places to run, but uh, we really, I mean, we have a great uh, college team in BSU. Mm -hmm. uh, their men and women have been have been stellar. Um, and now there's another another group that's starting up in town called the Idaho Distance Project that has Emma Bates and. Uh, Kinsey Middleton, who are the U.S. and Canadian marathon champs, respectively. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that group has been um, really crushing it recently, and is you know maybe putting Boise a little bit on the map in terms of a place to train. Uh, but we're mostly a, a mountain biking town. Yeah, <laughs> very much the opposite of when I was living in Marin in terms of the runner to biker ratio out on the yeah. trail. Definitely more bikers to runners at the moment. So okay. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is like, so you have a bunch of guys that are obviously still competitive post-collegiately and, you know, I have my own reasons for why I continued post-college, but I know, you know, a lot of my teammates stopped or got burnt out and I see that all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything in terms of, you know, like a common idea between all these guys that are still interested in being, you know, a kind of peak level, like. What's their motivation? Why are they out there? Yeah, we're a group that's probably 50% of the people were guys that never competed in college and okay. found the sport afterwards and have kept going after that. And I think that that's one thing um, that is actually 
maybe more of a predictor of people willing to sort of get into a group and stay in a group because I find this the similar thing. We have the younger guys do skew towards having been competitive and running in college, mm-hmm. um, but they're also the ones that they're also only a fraction of the people that run in college. Um, so if I look back and think about my teammates from Davis, there are only a couple from the four years that I was there, not even just from my class, but from the four years that I can think of that are still running and still trying to be competitive. Mm-hmm. So it's, there does seem to be a, a drop off. Um, and I, I don't know what accounts for that massive drop off if people get burnt out or, um, or they just were in it for uh, the wrong reasons initially during college or mm-hmm. what, but um, uh, yeah, our group, seems to be a lot of people who are just come to the sport a little bit older and just want to see what their potential is Mm -hmm. um, as they get older. So we have uh, quite a few people in their 40s. And uh, those guys, they're not necessarily getting a ton faster, but um, they're still improving, which is pretty cool to see. So Yeah, and that's always – I think there's probably a couple of factors at play with with the college people. Like I said, I kind of see burnout in terms of – where I went, I mean, we were racing all the time, and it's just it just wears on you physically, mentally, and if you don't love it, then it's easy to go, okay, I'm I'm done doing this. Um, I kind of dealt with it. I, I guess one of the guys I ran with gave me what I believe to be the biggest compliment a distance runner could get. He described me as the workhorse of the team. Like I was always willing to work the hardest, and because I loved it, but. Um, I think life gets in the way too. You know, people compete yeah. for so hard. And then I know a couple of guys that really love running, but then now like one guy works for UPS, but he gets up, he starts delivering at seven in the morning. He's not done till seven, or eight at night. Like he's just tired, you know? So I think that's part of it, but it's awesome to see those older guys coming to the sport and still getting better. Like even if the, the guys that have been running since they were, 12 drop off having you know new kind of i'll call it new blood yeah even if they're older coming into the sport that's really cool where where did you go to school uh, i went to william jewell it's a small liberal arts school yeah. north of kansas city i i know it i had two roommates in, in missouri who uh, went to william jewell yeah the, you can't go anywhere without yeah. somebody <laughs> somebody yeah. knowing it or knowing somebody who went there even though um I think total school enrollment was like a, a thousand or so. It's less mm-hmm. than my high school. Somehow we all disseminate like <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. yeah. They're both, they're actually both runners. Yeah. Um, they both ran the marathon for William Jewell. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. so it had to have been a little while ago. They transitioned to division two and kind of dropped off with, of the, like the longer distance stuff. I was at the very end of my senior year was the last year that they were officially NAIA and then they yeah. were uh, provisional division two after that. So, yeah, you might know one of your new Kansas city, uh, Kansas city city legislatures is one of them. Actually, <laughs> one of yeah, my I, old... saw, I actually don't, I'm not sure if I, what was his name? Eric bunch. Yeah. yeah I know the, I knew I saw, I saw that. I saw that name yeah. on your Twitter feed. I was like, man, I know that name. I I've never met Eric, but I'm, ran with people who ran with him so yeah. it's like a couple yeah. of years it's, separated it's always it's always like that yeah 
And there's always a few, when you go back either before generation before the generation after, that's one of the cool things about that community that you build yeah. at a school is that it still exists. And I still reach out to people who I never ran with yeah. or, or at Davis before I was. And then also on the other side, people that I never ran with because they're younger than me um, as well. So, yeah, I'm sure um, the, the guy that's now the head athletic director at the college um, he was my coach for three of my four years. I'm sure I'm pretty sure he would have competed with with bunch. I think they're a similar age. So oh, cool. I may I may have to ask him about it. Um, so so one of the things. So you're you're at Idaho. Did you grow up in Idaho? Or did you, how did you find yourself there? Yeah. So that's like the long academic twisted story, which is mine's probably not as long as a lot of other academics. But <laughs> okay. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, so I grew up in California and started when I was a sophomore in, in high school um, and was fairly uh, fairly successful, but not so successful that I was getting offers from a bunch of D1 schools. Um, most of the D1 schools were not that interested in me. Um, and uh, I picked UC Davis because it was uh, a very competitive D2 school at the time when I started. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was not too far from home, about... 80 minutes or so and I just really liked the team atmosphere there so did my undergrad at UC Davis uh, switched into an exercise biology minor after entering as a biochem minor Um, and I really liked the the way Davis had the exercise bio uh, major setup basically Mm -hmm. had to take all of the same uh, biology core that any bio major had to take, which included like genetics and molecular biology and biochemistry. So it was pretty rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I went to University of Missouri where I got my PhD. I was there for five years and I worked in uh, a lot of Frank Booth. I did a couple of postdocs after that, um, which we can talk about if you want. Um, sure. And then I just sort of was out of the basic research game and was just sort of tired of it and looking for something else to do. And I had entered grad school with the idea of, you know, maybe becoming like a community college teacher and a coach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I ended up actually, you know, from that second postdoc getting the position at the College of Idaho, uh, which is actually a very, very small school, similar to William Jewell, about a, a thousand undergrads, uh, an NAI school. And um, I've been there for uh, four years. So this will be starting my fifth year of teaching um, in a, a month or so. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up in, in Idaho. I was not willing to move anywhere for this type of position. It had to be the right sort of setting and mm-hmm. Boise sort of checked all those boxes for us, uh, when we were looking, um, it has great outdoor scene. The cost of living was fairly low. It's still pretty low, even though it's growing quite rapidly. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and the college itself was um, really allowed me to just focus on on teaching rather than having to develop and sustain a research program. Yeah, that's what I was get, just getting ready to ask you because I know Jewel has a pretty good balance between professors still do research, but it's not a research mill. It's not like it's not a paper mill where you no. you know it's not publish or die. It's teaching is important, and the undergrad students are important. So, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's been the the biggest shift for me is going from essentially two postdocs where I did nothing but research. Um, When I started at 
College of Idaho, I'd never taught a class. I'd never written a syllabus. Mm-hmm. And uh, to get hired in a tenure track position like that, it's pretty rare. Felt pretty lucky. Um, but I also felt like I was really far behind. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of colleagues who come in, you know, they have years of maybe visiting professor positions or instructor positions before they get that first tenure track uh, gig. And um, I was just thrown into it. Um, yeah. So I was trying to, we were reminiscing about how I was trying to prepare before. And I was sort of like, I don't even know how to prepare. I don't even know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> so like what the day-to-day stuff is going to be. So that first year was pretty rough. Um, but I've sort of settled in and I'm starting to develop a bit more of a research program and a bit more of an identity and direction in which I, I hope to sort of direct the research. But mm-hmm. an important part of the research that I do at the College of Idaho is really to get undergrads involved and excited about research. And that often requires me to sort of cater to their interest rather than the other way around, around where like I do have projects that I'm very interested in and passionate about, but um, if they're interested in something else, then I want to facilitate that interest and get them interested in doing research and the process of research. And mm-hmm. they might not publish a paper, they might not even go to a conference, but um, just partaking in the, the process of research is a really valuable experience for them mm-hmm. and something that um, uh, that I really find important as part of my job, more so important than me publishing papers and trying right. to get grants and things like that so so they actually get to design their own study and go through the whole experimental process yes uh yeah and they often learn about the difficulties of doing research in humans um you know it's not easy to get pass the IRB and yeah you got to go through the IRB and then um I mean just recruiting and then making sure students are sort of following the the, the instructions the students are often the participants as well you know mm-hmm. If they're going to do some sort of metabolic test, they got to show up fasted in the morning, or they got to get at least get up in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be consistent and, you know, not to have it like, like pull an all-nighter the night before. And so they, they quickly see some of the difficulties and pitfalls of doing human research as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get, this is one of the things that I always have, like, I have trouble with, and, and there's not a whole lot of way around it is like, I wish you could get larger sample size for all these, you know, athletic studies. It's like, yeah. we're trying to find significant data, but it's like, oh, we can only get 20 people. And it's like, can you really extrapolate, you know, information from 20 people to an entire population? I, I think I have difficulty with that sometimes, even if like the, the results are statistically significant to a large degree, it's just like, it's still such a small sample. Yeah, small sample and sometimes a statistically significant difference isn't a physiologically significant difference. Right. Um, and sometimes the opposite is true, where a non-significant statistical difference is actually physiological, physio- physiologically different and important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the tension often lies in the idea of are you if you're recruiting these untrained athletes, which untrained college males, which is what so much of the science is done on. Mm-hmm. Um, they have they start from such a low level that they can go they can move up quite a bit yeah but what we're often interested in is what it happens if you take the elite athlete and can you nudge them just a little bit further mm-hmm. and so that difference is is hard to find it's hard to get statistically different and then also getting elite athletes you can't get hundreds of them yeah you know, 
like in, in Boise, I can count on, you know, my two hands, how many athletes I would include in that, that study. Yeah. Uh, and I'd have to get them all to engage. And so that makes it quite difficult as well, depending on, you know, what you're actually looking at. So we see a lot of these studies that get published and show, you know, a training effect of, of, you know, this new modality or an exercise, a recovery effect of something. And yeah, but it's probably done in people that are untrained and don't necessarily look like us who have been training for, you know, extended periods of time. Yeah. Well, and the last person I talked to, he does kind of similar, similar research in, in terms of looking at athletes. And one of the things he mentioned is another issue is not only do we already have a, a small sample size of people willing to participate, but if you're trying to pick up like elite athletes, they're going to be even less likely for you to kind of mess around with their schedule mm-hmm. and try to, you know, actually set up an experiment because they, they want to be in control of what they're doing because they're always trying to be better. So it's, it's, I think it's hard for them to hand off some of that control to you for you to experiment on them. Yeah. And it gets in the way of their training and their program. And I mean, when they're dedicating that, that much of their life to that thing that they're doing, it's really hard to say, yeah, I'm willing to interrupt that for, for the science or for something else. Yeah. 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 Um, I was reading, um, you had on your Twitter feed, you had, you had posted the 2012 study that you were part of that keeps still getting quoted so lack of exercise, major cause of chronic diseases. Is that what you did for your thesis or, or was that yeah. separate? That was a separate project. So um, when I was at University of Missouri, I worked with this guy, Frank Booth. And Frank is really a pioneer of what I would say the physical inactivity uh, science and physical inactivity physiology. Mm-hmm. And basically that is sort of, it is the opposite of being active, but not exactly. Um, and it's just saying that what we were really interested in is we know all of these different diseases are associated with physical inactivity, mm-hmm. but we don't really know what the trigger is. We don't have a smoking gun for those. Um, so uh, a sort of analogy to that is once uh, smoking was determined to have like cause direct mutations in genes and ca- have a direct cause to cancer, we had sort of a smoking gun and all sorts of public policy changed around the idea of smoking, right? You can't smoke in bars anymore, smoking in public places is sort of looked down down upon and um, it really changed the whole conversation around, around smoking. We don't have the same thing for inactivity. Like smoking, we know it's bad for you, but mm-hmm. we don't really have the sort of the smoking gun, unintended, I guess, uh, that that can then allow like massive policy changes to get people to be more active. And, um, you know, part of that paper, which we wrote, uh, which I wrote with, uh, with Frank was to basically just take all of the evidence that we have, try to find all of the evidence we have and all the different ways that inactivity is bad for us and just put it all in one spot. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's become a, a pretty highly cited paper. And it's a, a really good resource for students and researchers who are interested in, you know, what are the effects of inactivity um, to have. Uh, I mean, I think we have over 450 references in that paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took, you know, like a year to write that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't directly related to my to my thesis because it's not any original research. Right. It's more review paper. 
um, but it's related to sort of the topic and, and what I was studying um, while I was at University of Missouri. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do you classify inactivity? Is it like, obviously, like so many people now, we want to work office jobs and sitting down all day. Do you classify it in terms of, um, I know steps is really popular right now as a measure of activity. Do you classify it in terms of steps? Do you like, how do you actually quantify somebody that's quote unquote inactive? Yeah, so that is a difficult question. And one of the reasons why I think the research has sort of struggled is because we use all these indirect measures of inactivity. Mm -hmm. We use steps um, frequently. We use sitting time or TV watching time in epidemiology studies for inactivity. But inactivity is essentially the, the lack of any sort of muscle contraction. So okay. even, even walking would be something that would counter inactivity. Right. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be exercise that's countering an activity. It can be just your sort of daily life and movement. Um, so, you know, things that counter the sitting um, that we do, uh, and I guess it's it's mostly defined by by how much sitting that we we do is how much how inactive we actually are going to be. Um, so taking ways to sort of encourage standing, walking being more active uh, are all things that can counter an activity. But we don't have like a definition saying X, num X amount of sitting is bad or X length of time is bad. Um, but you do see that even uh, an hour of sitting can sort of really reduce uh, some metabolic effects, uh, some metabolic benefits you get from just being, just moving around slightly. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it would, in an ideal world, um, do we do we structure our society and our in our I guess I'll say our cities more like European cities where there are less cars and more walkability or like do you have like an idea of how I mean we've got walking desks and all these things but like have you thought about you know if you were if you were to play I guess play God but like if you're in charge of the Sims and we're the Sims and you're redesigning our town like what what do you do that changes our everyday life yeah you just have to I think built-in environment is so important so having uh, I mean I'm not a psychologist but a lot of the I think a lot of the changes will have to sort of you know make the active choice the easy choice right okay. right now the active choice is not the easy choice it's much easier to just get in the car and go rather than say take public transportation right. or ride bike to public transportation or things like that um, and changing the environment of the cities itself is going to be critical to that mm -hmm. um, and so maybe that is you know changing a work environment in which you only have standing desks and people just get used to it um, or uh, there is just a culture of people taking walk breaks every every hour. Mm -hmm. uh, so building that into sort of the environment, I think it's gonna be uh, the key thing if you're gonna redesign you know, a city, uh, it's really changing the built-in environment that makes it, uh, that makes the easy choice to be active, right? The hard choice is to get in the car and, and sit or things like that. Yeah. Right. Oh, I know it's not, it's not as easy as just saying, you know, fix it. There's a lot of like, there's so much like red tape yeah. and funding and you already have infrastructure that's set up. Um, 
I have a friend who actually went to Davis and um, she does uh, ur- oh, is it urban transport planning. She basically works on making, um, I think she still lives in Davis. I think she, anyway, she's, uh, she works on making the city more bikeable, increasing mm-hmm. like accessible, safe bike lanes and that kind of stuff. Um, and I know here in Kansas City, our public transport is horrendous. I fortunately moved to a neighborhood that's much more walkable. Like I'm staring at the grocery store right now. It's that close yeah. to my house. Um, so I live in a very fortunate part of town, but much of our urban sprawl is you have to get in a car and I kind of think about that in terms of, yeah, how, how do we make all of these suburbs more like the one that I live in? It's more walkable, just, well, yeah, just from a cultural want, standpoint. You may want to have Eric on your podcast then, because, you know, he used to be <laughs> the head of the Bike KC. So he's, yeah. that, that's his, his jam is sort of figuring out how to make the city more, your city, more uh, rideable and more public transport. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll definitely have to reach out to him. I know they've yeah. got um ride kc has all kinds of stuff going on right now we're trying to extend the streetcar line and there's new electric bikes and they just came out with um like better scooters you know there's all the private companies doing the scooters mm-hmm. but they just they're on like the radio doing ads for their new scooters and they're really trying to work on like better public transport so yeah yeah i'll have to i'll have to talk to eric about that or reach yeah. out to him and see if he's willing to talk to me there is no there is no sort of one one size fits all solution and there's no right. one sort of switch that you can flip and then everybody's going to be, you know, uh, everyone's out walking and happy yeah. and active. Yeah, no, it's, it's not perfect. It's a transition thing. I, I just, I've seen a lot of things happening here, which I've been, I've been happy about. So it's just, you know, just curious of your opinion there. Um, well, one, one thing that, I mean, maybe this feeds into more of the research and I can talk about like the projects that I'm interested in right now, yeah, yeah. Um, something that were, uh, that should be accepted fairly soon is a study that we did looking at um, sort of the timing of exercise versus meals. Uh-huh. And so one of the, one of the key things um, is trying to keep your blood glucose levels low, even after you eat. Okay. Uh, so call that the postprandial hyperglycemia that normally comes from when you eat, you know, something mm-hmm. with a bunch of carbs or even not with a ton of carbs with protein, you have a rise in blood glucose levels. Okay. And how much that rises is actually a predictor of, of health, uh, cardiovascular mortality, overall mortality. Um, and that's not just in diabetics, but in healthy people as well. And so we're, we're interested in, we know that exercise can lower blood glucose. And we know that, uh, even exercise, um, the, like moderate amount of exercise, an hour, say, of aerobic intensity can definitely lower and limit the, the rise in blood glucose. But we wanted to see how little exercise or could you do, and when would you want to do that? Would mm-hmm. you want to do that right before a meal, right after a meal, say 30 minutes after a meal? When's the ideal time to sort of get those muscles contracting and sort of get them ready to soak up the glucose? Um, and so we looked at, uh, 30 minutes, either bef- before, right after, or 30 minutes, a- uh, 30 minutes after about a 500 calorie meal. Mm-hmm. And the exercises that they did were really easy. In fact, not even exercise. Like one, one arm of the study was just standing. Mm-hmm. Another arm was walking at like 2.3 miles per hour. So okay. super slow. Yeah. And then the other arm was doing some body weight exercises. So, uh, just doing like. 10 air squats, five lunges, 
10 push-ups and some sit-ups. Mm -hmm. And we looked at then the blood glucose levels after the meal. And what we found is doing those exercises or those movements, that physical activity right after the meal, regardless of what type of activity was, was the best way to lower blood glucose. So, um, so one of the recommendations that if you're going to be physically active or to try to minimize physical inactivity is to do it at a specific time and minimize that physical inactivity right after you eat. Mm -hmm. So getting up and moving right after you have a meal uh, seems to be important to sort of minimize that, uh, that postprandial glucose spike that happens. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so, and I had seen suggestions that, um, like, say you go for a walk after a meal, like it aids in digestion, but I don't know that I had seen anything in, like, in particular about it affecting your blood glucose levels. Yeah. And we're really interested in, you know, making this a very, these very practical types of studies mm -hmm. things people can actually do in a very free living sort of environment. So mm -hmm. um, this was like a breakfast meal. And so, you know, there's all sorts of caveats with research. And this, this research has the caveat of it was a liquid breakfast meal. So okay. apply to lunch and dinner. We can't really say right now. Um, there's some sort of epidemiology evidence that may, it might. Um, and then we don't really know, does this apply equally well to diabetics? Do they need Right. Same minimum amount of, of exercise. Maybe they need a little bit more. Maybe they have to walk a little bit faster. Um, but uh, it is a nice step forward. And we're going to continue to sort of explore this path. That's one of the things that, that I'm going to try to keep doing in the in the lab um, mm -hmm. at College of Idaho uh, to explore this sort of really practical, free living, experimental stuff, uh, especially because we have access now to these continuous glucose monitors that are amazing pieces of technology yeah measure glucose every five minutes you know fairly non-invasively you're not you don't have to perk somebody's finger you know 400 times um so uh so we have some tools that really allow us to gain some insight into like what people do in a non-laboratory super well controlled environment and you know that makes it a little bit trickier to do some of the study but also makes it a little bit more applicable to you know the general public uh at large and mm -hmm. uh yeah so that's that's one area that we're that we're focused on and moving towards um, so how did you decide on doing a, a like a liquid breakfast i guess when i think about and this is i apologize if this is a dumb question but um i think about i think about like recovery products and stuff like that it's always like gel liquid supposedly because it it's absorbed faster yeah. Is a lick is a liquid going to have say say uh, having like a shake or whatever that liquid thing is for breakfast versus I'll say like a full English breakfast, assuming caloric intake's the same and and yeah. like macro profiles the same. I mean, is that do you think that would affect that that change in blood glucose level? Definitely. I mean, it's gonna the you're going to have a slower absorption of blood glucose with a more solid meal. Right? Okay. And depending on the glycemic index of that meal. So right. is it, uh, is it processed carbohydrates or is it, uh, you know, veggies and whole fruits and things like that? Um, that in itself is going to change what that post perennial glucose looks like. So there's the potential that, you know, if you eat that so-called healthier, less processed meal, that maybe you don't need to actually stand up and move and your and the level of uh 
blood glucose is just going to remain fairly low um, mm-hmm. after that meal. But uh, you know, you have to make decisions with with studies as to as to what you're going to do. Yeah, you know, this is a this is a great idea for the next study, right? Does the same thing hold true if we do a 500 calorie, um, you know, whole food breakfast rather than yeah. the liquid? So, you know, that then requires, you know, bringing kids in, giving them a breakfast, <laughs> making them some <laughs> eggs in the lab. Uh, yeah. Well, you gotta, you know, gotta weigh out all the portions. Yeah. Some of them will still be hungry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Deal with all that. And then, then, like, I would think ideally, could you, I mean, would it make sense to, not that you necessarily could, but wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense to try to use the exact same people that you used previously or would you want a new group so that you could, I basically think about trying to control for uh, variations in like sensitivities to different foods. Yeah. People, well, people dif- just differ in general, right? Yeah. So they're going to have different levels of digestion and absorption. So it's going to be faster or slower in some people. So yeah. the best is always having the same people do the same studies over and over again. Um, but this had 16 people in each of those different uh, exercise or mm-hmm. activity interventions. Uh, so it was actually three different studies, kind of, not okay. the same 16 people in all, all three. But um, yeah, you, you start to run up against roadblocks in terms of how much time you can expect from from subjects, especially yeah. when you're not necessarily compensating them financially or anything, which I don't have the resources to do. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's not like they're getting a benefit of say, like a training benefit, like I'm not training them or anything. So, um, you know, they might be learning something interesting about themselves, but that's essentially the compensation that I'm giving them. So yeah. They have to be volunteers, um, which makes it difficult to get people to come in say, if you're doing, you know, four or five trials and each one lasts two hours, you're asking mm-hmm. eight, ten hours of uh, sort of time from somebody. For, just for their dedication to science and curiosity. Yep. Yeah. I mean, maybe I can trick them with, like, credits in some of my classes. I've tried to do that a little bit. <laughs> Psychology department, you know, requires students to volunteer. Yes. In some of their yep. classes. We did that as well. Yeah. <clears throat> but I haven't gotten quite to that point. So, okay. Um, that kind of leads me into, I, I think I saw that you are, you know, kind of your interest and some of your focus is studying um, the microbiome, gut mi- microbiome. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think I saw you done some stuff with ultra runners. Have you actually put together a study with them or are you just like trying to do independent measures, like, like pulling that, that glucose level at various stages of the race or like what, what are you doing working with them? Yeah. So, um, we got funding from, uh, ultra science foundation, uh, which is a foundation started by Marty Hoffman, who was the medical director at Western States 100 for a long time. Uh-huh. Western States is kind of the, the world series of ultra running in the U S right. It's the biggest, yeah. biggest ultra running race in the U S and, um, that project was uh, funded to collect um, biome samples, which essentially means fecal or poop samples uh, yeah. from athletes. And uh, the idea is that um, ultra runners have, like one of the main symptoms they have during races is um, GI issues, gastrointestinal mm-hmm. issues, like stomach problems, nausea, vomiting, et cetera. 
and the microbiome is known to be protective of against a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons they may have this GI issue is from heat and just the physical exertion of a of an ultra. So as we get hotter, um, the gut becomes sort of ischemic, and there becomes gaps in the in the sort of intestinal wall that allow bacteria to sort of move from the gut into the circulation. And those bacteria can then induce a sort of pro-inflammatory, what we call, um, we call it like uh, endotoxemia response um, that induces cytokines and that can induce some of the nausea. Mm -hmm. And so we were wondering if different ultra runners had different um, different microbiomes that might be protective or not against these symptoms. So we measured their GI symptoms during the during the race itself and then collected samples beforehand. Um, and right now that project is in the stage of we're, we're trying to isolate the DNA still. And um, I'm working with a, a group at University of Kentucky mm -hmm. uh, who are sort of becoming pros in this area. And it's just one of those things that given my lack of resources, the lack of facility space that I can't really do on campus. And so yeah. I need to, I needed to find a collaborator to work on that with. And so it's a little bit slower process than I would have liked. Um, I would have liked to have the data by now and I would have liked to have, you know, something written up by now. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's one of the, just one of the things about working at a small school is making these projects come to fruition takes more time and uh, you have mm -hmm. to be a little bit more creative. Um, but I was really fascinated, you know, with how interested the runners were in the project and how mm -hmm. I was able to actually get um, a fairly high end. So I had 50, 50 people volunteer mm -hmm. and I only limited it at 50 because that's all the sort of kits that I made up beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, and the race is capped at 400 people. So, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big, pretty big percentage of, of the athletes. And yeah. they ranged from, you know, top 10 finishers all the way to just under the, you know, just at the deadline type finishers. So mm -hmm. I had the whole spectrum, whole age spectrum. And so I'm hoping that I can figure some sort of interesting, something interesting will come out of that data once we get it done. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out if, um, I, I don't know if you saw like when I sent you the email asking you to come on, I had mentioned um, Greg Rosicki and he also studies gut microbiome and he's currently doing a study with a case study with one particular ultra runner. I can't remember his name at the moment. Um, so I'm trying to figure out if it's just because my little world seems to revolve around endurance athletes or if there's something particularly interesting about what's going on in the gut of ultra runners. Um. I mean, I think ultra running in particular is interesting for this just because there is such this nutritional load component you have mm -hmm. to eat um, and just because of the prevalence of GI issues. Yeah, and that's why yeah. I think the microbiome is, is interesting with for ultra runners. Um, and also, like, frankly, like I need to find a little bit of a niche to be able to study that okay. I won't get, you know, sort of swooped in by bigger uh, labs with better resources and more time um, to do something. So it's a little bit niche -y and okay. Greg, is, Greg is a similar way. Um, uh, Greg and I actually 
I reached out to Greg about like trying to collaborate on the, mm -hmm. on the project and eventually through him found the person that, uh, that I'm collaborating with at University of Kentucky. Okay. So yeah, a PhD student, Taylor Valentino, who's an ultra runner himself. Uh, so it's a perfect fit. Um, and he's uh, been a great, a great guy to work with so far. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's such a small world. I was like, you probably, I was like, there's, if you don't know Greg, I was like, you've probably heard of Greg. And I can just can't imagine that there's that many people like in that, kind of intersection of um no. study no there's not but um but i don't know if you had have heard about this this massive study that came out in nature medicine which is one of the best like most high impact journals i won't say best but has the highest impact of any journals uh but it looked at uh boston marathon runners gut microbiome mm -hmm. Uh, have you heard about this study? Well, I, I saw it in your, your Twitter feed, but I was actually going to let you kind of digest it for me a little bit more than me trying to digest it just myself. Yeah. So what is fascinating is they found that that there's a specific species or strain of bacteria that was higher prevalent in the faster runners, and it was related to lactate metabolism. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they did is they actually then took that strain and put it in mice and they found that those mice had improved performance. Mm -hmm. So they not only found that there was a strain like just associated and correlated, and we know that you know correlation is not causation right. um, with, uh, with like increased performance, but then they actually went one step further and you know inoculated these mice with that strain of bacteria and showed that just by doing that, they could improve the mice, the mice's, the, the mouse, the mice's <laughs> performance yeah. uh, on the treadmill. Now, whether that re relates to human performance, you know, is still not completely known, but uh, the fact that they can just, you know, change one bacterial strain in a mouse, you know, microbiome and then have it improve in endurance performance is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can bet that there's products being made or developed uh, that are looking at that specific, specific strain as oh, far yeah. as a pro or prebiotic and um, seeing if you can, you know, do the same in humans. So, yeah. And that's what kind of, I, I talked a little bit um, to Greg about this. I was just like, since I'm an entrepreneur and I love that you're, you're like a lot of your research and, and interest is in like practical studies. Like what can we do that people can literally take and try to apply just because that's my interest as an entrepreneur, like what, what product can I create? What solution can I provide that, you know, helps people have a better life, whether that's better performance or just happier or whatever it is. Like it, it's sometimes I think we run into with science. It's like almost these esoteric studies that sometimes something will come of them. And other times they just kind of float into the ether and then, you know, don't really get used for anything. So yeah, like, it's just it's my personal bend i probably really should have been an engineer because i'm so like <laughs> problem solution focused um but no that's that's really cool um and yeah i'm sure if we don't see it that that was in that study was just recently published wasn't it yeah like uh three three or four weeks ago i think yeah, yeah so i'd yeah. say if we don't see something in the next year using that i'd be surprised especially for people that are already in that space that already know, you know, how to produce that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think they come up with something. I'm quick. pretty sure. I mean, this was a, a study published by researchers at Harvard 
and um, they've probably already spun out a, a company or have a company that is sort of licensed to use this and probably have intellectual property on the specific stuff already is my guess yeah 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 that makes so, sense yeah um i kind of wanted to ask a little bit about um i read on your your not very updated blog a little bit about you've had issues with cartilage damage and kind of like personal trials with running and and, and marathoning um can you tell tell me a little bit about guess what happened with the cartilage damage and yeah. kind of what how that's all developed the first thing i always have to preface it with is it wasn't because of running that i hurt my knee right <laughs> it right. was it was because of running but it wasn't because of like overuse injury it was actually traumatic injury so i was running and um and i slipped and i basically uh my knee just went straight into like a big old granite rock mm -hmm. and at the time, uh, I was maybe mm, trying to ignore it more than I than I should have. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, over the course of a year, I developed sort of a knee pain. Um, tried all sorts of physical therapy to try to try to get rid of that pain. And eventually, had an MRI, and it showed that there was um, a cartilage like defect, which basically means that that cartilage was actually completely gone. And so there was a, a spot when my where my knee you know, flexes over the patella here and it hits mm -hmm. the, hits the, um, the tibia where it just basically is bone on bone. Okay. Um, and so that was causing the pain and the inflammation. So as I would run that, that motion would, uh, would hit that, hit that bone and like inflame it and probably cause more and more cartilage damage. So I was looking into what sort of things can be done for cartilage damage, and there's not a lot. <laughs> cartilage does not really grow back. Yeah. Um, so there's a few different surgery options, and eventually I settled on the option of what is called a microfracture, and it's not the most up-to-date surgery, uh, but it's one that is has been used uh, for a number of years uh, with pretty much the same success as any of these other uh, options mm -hmm. uh, but it allows these other options to s sort of stay on the table um, and so what they do with the microfracture is they go and they went into my to my knee into the femur and they basically poked holes in the bone yeah uh, and then the bone marrow effuses out and in that bone marrow are cells that can make cartilage and those cells hopefully stick make cartilage and sort of plug plug that hole um, the caveat is that cartilage is as far inferior to the cartilage that we're born with it's a different type of cartilage that was more likely to break down so i did that started running again it was up to like 20 or 30 miles a week even ran in club nationals last december mm -hmm. um, but i was still having knee pain uh, in the spring i still had knee pain after running um, i was doing the workouts with the guys and Eventually I got a second MRI and they showed that the lesion was actually bigger than it was before. So more damage had, had occurred and I may not have actually had much recovery from, uh, from the initial thing. So I'm at this stage now where I'm in this sort of weird spot where they're like, well, we could do a another surgery if you have painful symptoms, mm -hmm. like if you relieve the symptoms uh, or you can just modify your lifestyle to not induce the symptoms if possible um, which, which and, is a polite <laughs> polite way to put it 
Yeah, which is a polite way to say don't run. Yeah. Um, and and even if you know, even if they did the surgery, they would recommend not running because uh, these all these surgeries have very limited efficacy long term. They're yeah. none of them are really that great for long term. Um, sort of, there's no reversal of the of the damage. Um, so long term, you know, I'm probably now looking at you know getting a knee replaced eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, and until then, um, trying to mitigate any of the symptoms and, and such as I can. Uh, I'm on the list for a particular type of surgery in which they take a cadaver knee and they actually take a little bit of the bone and then the cartilage and they just sort of fit it in to your bone and cartilage to match. Um, and hopefully that will then uh, prevent the damage. Um, but uh, I probably won't get that surgery at least for a couple of years as it stands yeah. right now. The recovery is really terrible. It's six weeks of non-weight bearing. Um, okay. so that's a, that's a pretty significant hurdle, even to even to a college professor who has summers off. It's not uh, not typically what I want to be doing for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And you so, spent you. Uh, I think I saw you had spent time um, in a passive motion machine after the the surgery. Yeah, so I was definitely researching different ways to improve the outcome of the surgery, and mm -hmm. one of the things that they found that they found at least in animal models is that. Uh, passive range of motion, which is basically this machine that sort of takes your knee, it you know it goes from here and then flexes it up and then back and back and forth. Yeah, real slow. Six or eight hours a day. Yeah, you know, sitting on the couch with that machine, and um, that was one thing that was supposed to improve, um, like your outcome from the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one thing that I was trying to do. Another thing I was trying to do was eat more um, gelatin, <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of soft tissue, um, and sort of tendon and ligament uh, health, uh, which is work that um, Keith Barr at UC Davis has done, uh, which is some really interesting stuff and uh, very unique that not a lot of people are studying, but how you can actually improve and repair tendons and ligaments and um, sort of non-muscle tissue, which cartilage is, is one as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't, there's no evidence that it works for cartilage, but, uh, there was no harm in eating like this. Right. It's this one of those, like, it's not going to hurt, but maybe it'll help. But maybe it'll Yeah. And then the last thing that I was trying to do and something that I, you know, as I read more and more on, um, is getting in the sauna. So even mm -hmm. passively heating like the leg as, I wasn't able to put any weight weight on it, so it's mm -hmm. going to atrophy naturally. But it does seem that heat um, can attenuate some of the atrophy. And I think I just tweeted about a paper yesterday that um, that is showing this a similar thing that uh, if you just heat up the muscle, you can sort of block the breakdown of of you know muscle mass and maybe the loss of mitochondria you would typically get. So I, I, I'm a firm believer that sauna is, a, is an important thing for recovery from a surgery like that, but also just in general, it's something that I do um, prescribe some of my athletes as well, uh, not just for the sort of heat um, acclimatization stuff, but uh, just in general, I think it can be useful. Yeah. It does, is a, like the method of heating matter, like say, say you're like spending time in a hot tub, is that going to be the same at, you know, effect as being in a sauna or is there something particular about 
I guess I'll say heated air versus heated water. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be because even um, this last study used a different sort of technique to heat just the local muscle. Mm. And so, it, you know, one leg was non-heated control leg and one leg was heated. Mm. Uh, and so that didn't seem to matter. But I think you get more systemic benefits if you're in sort of heated air or heated water, say, up to your, you know, your neck. Mm. And uh, you basically have to feel uncomfortable. Um, that's yeah. the rule of thumb for actually getting any benefits is you can't just go in there and get that warm, like a nice warm feeling, but oh, you yeah, actually slightly start. toasty, feel good. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It, it's at that point where you start to get uncomfortable. You, you know, you stay in another three or four minutes and then, uh, and then you're probably getting some sort of benefit. And okay. um, th that's the same for heat acclimatization. Like you, you need to make sure that you're actually feeling uncomfortable in order to be getting the, sort of benefits from, from heat acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. are you at the point now where you're, you're basically off? You're just not, not running. Yeah. I'm running, you know, once a week okay. for five miles and, uh, I get pretty sore afterwards, which is really funny. Uh, and, uh, I'm trying to do more biking and just stay yeah. after the ways. Um, yeah. And just focus more on my coaching and, you know, try to live vicariously through all those other athletes that I, that I coach, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's a good opportunity to take a step back from, um, my own running. And it is really fun to help athletes, uh, sort of, you know, reach their potential. Um, you know, the puzzle for each athlete's different and it takes time and an effort to do it well. So, uh, I think that not running gives me, um, more time and, uh, time to be able to, sort of focus on on the coaching part which is you know it's it's a reasonable transition and i may get back to running at some point uh but mm -hmm. uh, not for the immediate future yeah yeah so i mean you're you're feeling good and you're not like having any mental breakdowns or i think it's so let's see this happened i mean over four years ago when i first mm -hmm. heard my knee and uh it's not easy to to come to grips with the fact that you might not be able to run. Yeah. When, you know, I did it at a, at a time when I had, um, was having probably the most success I'd ever had as a runner. Uh, and so to table that and have to move away from the sport at that specific time is, yeah, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really, really, really hard. And, uh, you know, it's probably why I kept going back and like, trying to run and trying to run and then developing, you know, the same pain and sort of banging your head against the wall over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it just, it has taken a lot of time to sort of mentally say, all right, I'm, I'm going to be retired from, from the more competitive aspect of running and yeah. sports. So, um, so mentally I'd say I'm, I'm much better than I was, you know, a year or two or to go, but mm -hmm. it's still, you know, you still get a little bit of FOMO when you see people that you were yeah. running, going out there doing, doing great things and having fun and seeing great places on their, on their feet and, and knowing that, uh, that you might not get back there for, you know, for a while. So, yeah. 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 I mean, is there, was there anything you did to kind of cope with that or is it just a matter of like time heals all wounds? Um, I think it's, you know, you definitely have to change the perspective. So, you know, changing my perspective from as a runner to as a coach has been important mm -hmm. um, to see that as, you know, 
to see that as more of an identity than the runner, the runner and athlete part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not like I have now a bunch of free time, you know, I've been busy, you know, yeah. I, have, I have this, this career and path that I, that I'm on and, uh, it can consume all of the time if I want it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like I have all, uh, this, this now this gap in time that I'm trying to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also think in one of the recommendations or my wife had this idea, which I thought was quite brilliant and we haven't fully done it yet, but we were basically going to have a retirement party so that you okay. could have a closure and like, you know, bring out a few of the old like medals or, or things and just say like, all right, we're retiring and yeah, sort of it. So uh, at least mentally, I've been thinking of myself as retired from that aspect. Okay. I think that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Not just injured and coming back anymore. I'm just retired and that's fine. Yeah. It gives you this kind of space to have an identity shift, like you were talking about moving from runner yeah. to coach. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a really hard thing because, you know, we definitely identify as runners, like yeah. if you've been doing it for, you know, 20 plus years, yeah. uh, then it's a hard, it's a hard thing to shift from. Um, and, you know, despite all of the, all of the talk about, you know, meditation, mindfulness, and letting go of the ego, you know, th- one of the reasons why we run is often for ego to sort mm-hmm. of express our competitiveness um, and to see, you know, what we're capable of, you know, you know, the I, what, what I am capable of. And, yeah. Or, I'm, you know, I'm still good enough to do this or I'm, you know, I'm still whatever it is we have in our mind's eye about, who we are and what we can do and yeah, our capabilities. Yeah. And so, um, so we, you know, we talk about that not necessarily being a good thing, but uh, we all have those outlets that mm-hmm. those sort of ego outlets that, uh, that we need. And, and, you know, for runners, yeah, the running is important for that. Yeah. 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 Matt, um, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody for this year. This is my like ending question. Um, I like to ask everybody if you can only choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? You can't choose gelatin, by the way. Okay, I won't choose. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't choose it anyways. Uh, <laughs> one food for recovery. Uh, I gotta go chocolate milk. I've okay. Always been, yeah, I'm sure I'm probably not the first person to say that. But, no, the, uh, the first person to say that was actually one of the guys that that put together the chocolate milk study. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think chocolate milk has a nice balance of, uh, of sort of the, the carbs and protein that you need. And, uh, plus it's pretty delicious. So, uh, I definitely would down some chocolate milk after my, after my super long runs. Um, it was always in my repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Um, Matt, if people want to see what you're up to, um, follow you, see kind of what's going on, where can they find you? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm MJ Lay. That's L-A-Y-E. So it's just my first first initial, middle initial, last name. Um, and that's where I try to share, like, whatever research I'm finding interesting. Um, and then uh, if you're interested in the coaching side of things, you can find me on Charmin Ultra. Um, so just Google Charmin Ultra at Matt and you can see sort of my bio as well as the other coaches that we work with uh, on Charmin Ultra who are a great crew uh, to work with. And uh, yeah, those are the two best ways uh, to get a hold of me and, and interact. Yep. 
Sounds good. Thanks for coming on today, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Jesse.